Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad to have you along for the ride today. Boy, do we have some good testimonies to share. Some very, very good news. I mean, we always have good news to share on Good News Friday, but today's program in particular, even more special, I think, for us, because we're going to be talking about some good news stories involving the actual good news. What is good news? The good news for us as Christians, of course, is that even though we're sinners, we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. And that is the ultimate good news that so many people desperately need to hear. Um, But the fact that this good news then brings with it something that's very important to us as Christians and as human beings. Human beings, we're born sinful into a fallen world, and we sin against God all the time until Uh, Jesus Christ enters our hearts, and then we receive the gift of faith, which allows us to have the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and it means all of our debts are paid. We have this redemption, we have this restorative uh, sense of of, uh, uh, justice before God now because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But what does that look like in the culture? Restorative justice is at the heart of our salvation experience. And there's one organization that's doing a tremendous work in the area of restorative justice. And joining me today is an expert to talk about that, to kick off our Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line today. Well, in a culture that we're living in right now, there are a lot of people who are looking for justice. They're looking for social justice. They're looking for anything that they can get that even resembles something that would be fair play in the legal system. But there's a component to justice that often gets overlooked, and that is justice that doesn't just punish somebody for a crime that they did or didn't commit in the moment, but something that takes maybe a little slightly deeper approach to restoring someone to wholeness and ensuring that uh, they don't continue to follow down that path. Uh, Joining me today here on the bottom line is Jonathan Jonathan Derby, Derby or Darby? Derby. Derby, okay, sorry. I wanted to get English there for a second, so. Joining me today here on the <laughs> yeah right. Joining me today here on the bottom line is Jonathan Derby. Jonathan is a special consultant for Prison Fellowship International and has been working on a handbook that helps uh, ministries and others uh, talk about the concept of restorative justice and what that means in a society. Uh, Jonathan Derby, welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. Hi, thanks for having me, Roger. Let's talk about a definition here, because I know for many people who are saying, and even people in the church, they're looking at some of the rioting that's happening, some of the incarceration, some of the you know things that happen that get all the network attention. And they'll say, well, we, we need to have social justice programs that make it better for people because they're not being treated fairly by law enforcement, this, that, and the other thing. But I think what a lot of people miss in situations like that is oftentimes they're circumstantial as opposed to you know thematically, you know, holistic approaches to what's going on. You and your colleagues yeah. at Prison Fellowship International have been working on something called a restorative justice handbook, uh, not just for ministries, though that's kind of where it started, it sounds like, but something that we can all benefit to. Help us understand, first and foremost, just the concept of restorative justice and why it really is far superior to just saying, well, let's have some social justice measures in place and we'll all feel good about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, restorative justice sees justice as healing. So normally, you know, when we think about justice and responding to crime, traditionally it's about it favors our our thought process more moves towards a retributive approach. Crime occurs when someone breaks the law, and justice really requires punishment. Um, so from a re- retributive paradigm or this paradigm, three questions are central: what law was broken, who broke the law, and what is the punishment? But really, crime is more 
than lawbreaking, like you mentioned. When someone commits crime, it, it, it hurts people, it breaks down relationships, breaks apart communities sometimes. And so a different restorative justice focuses on a different set of questions that's about the harm that happens from crime. It's mm -hmm. what is the harm, how do we repair the harm, and who has the responsibility to repair the harm. And it requires that the person who committed the harm take responsibility for what they've done Mm -hmm. and take active steps to as much as possible make, make things right um, for the people that they've harmed, especially the victim. And it's much more conversational, and it allows us to really get to the underlying issues that contributed towards the crime, and not just focus on guilt and then punishment. Mm -hmm. You know what I love about that definition, uh, Jonathan, is the fact that when you look at this now, I think oftentimes our brains are wired in such a way to where we say there's a good person, there's a bad person, we need to punish the bad person and help the good person, you know, who's been, it's, it's very black and white, cut and dry, you know, it's you versus them type of stuff. And when we see what happens in the culture now, we're pretty nuanced people, aren't we? I mean, we can we could be cre pretty creative. I remember studying, uh, not studying law directly, but studying changes in the law, especially as it pertained to uh, criminal activity and finding out all of a sudden it was kind of a head scratch for me to find out that criminals who were in the act of committing a crime all of a sudden had all these rights. And sometimes they wound up, you know, coming away better than if they hadn't committed the crime in the first place. And that didn't seem like really healthy justice system to me. Talk about how restorative justice puts the onus for all of our actions. I think first and foremost, it begins with each of us taking responsibility for our part in whatever is happening here. Exactly. I mean, really restorative justice is, is a way to handle conflict. And um, I mean, like you had mentioned, I think even in prison, the people that we engage with who are incarcerated around the world, a lot of times they've been victimized themselves, and they're so they're having to come to terms with that, and then that contributes to maybe what they've what they've done. Um, not to not to take away responsibility for what they've done, whatever, but at least it gives what the harm that they committed in context that they are also victims. So it helps us to understand that, but it also it focuses the shift on instead of blaming somebody or trying to assign punishment to say okay, it gives them the space to acknowledge what they've done, the harm that they've caused, and to be able to make, take active steps to make things right. And so even like in our general thinking of accountability, um, we think of accountability as punishment. But from a restorative perspective, accountability is that person taking active measures to first acknowledge what they've done, um, and then maybe apologize to the person that they've harmed. But more than the apology, take active steps to make things right and then change their behavior. Mm. I'm talking with Jonathan Derby today here on The Bottom Line with Prison Fellowship International. We've got a link for restorativejustice.org up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're talking about the concept of restorative justice. Jonathan, talk about your background. How did you get into this? I mean, you have a legal background, but why is this area of uh, the law, as it were, uh, important to you, especially when you consider the fact that uh, Prison Fellowship, of course, has a, you know, a faith-based component to it, that uh, they've seen success inside and outside of the church with, with regard to uh, people of faith, you know, benefiting from the initiatives of PFI. But uh, talk about your personal involvement here. Yeah, I mean, my personal involvement, it was, um, it started in India, actually. So I lived and worked in India with different nonprofits before prison, my role with Prison Fellowship International for 14 years. And so first I was with International Justice Mission, and I worked mm -hmm. in, um, you know, the offices in Mumbai, which combated sex trafficking and forced prostitution. 
And we saw that survivors of trafficking, we would, we would work closely with survivors of trafficking. We saw that justice for them, just as much as you know, the person that had trafficked them being punished, justice for them was getting access to services that they needed for their own healing to kind of make right what had happened to them so they can move forward with their lives. So I began to see justice much more nuanced. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by profession. And so I began to see it more nuanced as, you know, justice is just as much about healing as it is about punishment. But then I moved to Delhi, India, and started an organization um, that worked um, with supporting children who'd experienced sexual harm through the criminal justice process, both providing legal and psychosocial support. And we saw that often the criminal justice process, even when there was a conviction, it didn't make it didn't meet the needs of these kids who had been sexually harmed. That's really, they didn't need the, the person that had harmed them to go, to go to prison. They needed right. to be heard, to be believed and supported by those closest to them. Um, they needed to heal from the trauma that they had experienced. And so we started seeing restorative justice as a way um, to maybe add, add benefit or meet the, better meet the needs of, of the, the people that we are representing. And mm-hmm. that's where I learned about restorative justice, more on the victim side, yeah. um, which is it's actually very controversial, but for us it made sense. Mm-hmm. And then um, coming to Prison Fellowship International, seeing it more holistically as restorative, um, looking to restore um, also the you know, people who are incarcerated, that, you know, they're still in the place where they need healing as well. So you know, that's kind of my journey. Well, it's an amazing journey, Jonathan Derby, and I'm glad that you shared, you know, the background that kind of led you to where we are today having this conversation about restorative justice, because oftentimes, I mean, and it's glamorized in movies and media and things like that, uh, someone is victimized, say, in the case of what you just described, and then we see the trial and they have to go on the witness stand and they go through all this just horrendous, uh, you know, reliving of the story and, and, uh, you know, the person is sentenced to a certain period of time and then there's the you know parole hearing everything that goes on Mm -hmm. and it's all legal and it doesn't the the two people who don't get any sort of kind of healing or satisfaction out of this are the two people involved in the crime i mean it's like the system takes over all at that point and i think about our relationship with the lord and first and foremost i mean jesus rescues us from sin but then he redeems and restores us so it's not just a question of us saying, my debts are paid. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. I've got a clean record, you know, when I come before the Pima seat. But then it's like, okay, well, what what's left of me, though? I mean, you know, I've, I've been impacted by this. I've been hurt by this. And I've been hurt by somebody who hurt uh, was hurt by somebody else that led them down this path, too. So it, it's very, very nuanced. You mentioned it's controversial. Are you getting any kind of pushback in the church, you know, for the work that you're doing on this? I mean, not necessarily pushback in the church, but I think in the area of sexual harm, because the power dynamics is generally within restorative justice, the people, the person that's committed the harm would meet in a face-to-face encounter with the person that they've harmed. And because of the power dynamics, it's it's very controversial. But there are uh, movements or trends to be able to do this in a safe way, but perhaps they don't even even meet face-to-face. So that's what I meant about that. But I do do think that restorative justice as a concept within um, within some church groups is, is more controversial, just because it's so different than the paradigm of justice that we normally have, which is more of a punitive right. um, approach. So, but I mean, but what's important to understand is that you know, punitive justice and restorative justice or, you know, punitive adversarial justice, which is the dominant, you know, paradigm in the criminal justice system and restorative justice, they're not really, they're not opposed. You can have, 
you can you can have um, the two complement one another, where you have a criminal justice system that takes on um, more restorative characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not they're not opposed. And so that's right. important to understand. Well, they, yeah, they do they do work in tandem. That's a great distinction from Jonathan Derby with Prison Fellowship International today. We're talking about restorative justice and the website restorativejustice.org. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Jonathan Derby is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Jonathan is part of the Restorative Justice Initiative uh, with Prison Fellowship International. RestorativeJustice.org is the website. You can find their handbook that they've made available. And uh, they're helping. I mean, this the, the handbook is designed to help uh, national ministries, you know, who, who are working on these concepts of restorative justice. But, uh, you know, l- what does it look like, Jonathan, from the, the standpoint of we were talking during the break about um, you know, in, in terms of how it helps the whole system. I mean, not only uh, just for the, the benefit of the victim, but also the perpetrator, but also in terms of the way this is treated, it, you know, sentencing handed out, you know, that type of stuff. It, it, t- talk about what, when restorative justice is the nature of the beast, then you don't have the judges. I was remembering during the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings and Katanji Brown-Jackson was getting raked over the coals over the fact that she wasn't meeting minimum sentencing standards and things like that, which kind of raised the question, well, how do we get those in the first place and what are they trying to accomplish? Talk about what you guys are working on. And so the restorative part then isn't focused so much on how much was the fine, how long is the sentence? Yeah. I mean, so a lot of times, um, yeah, when you're talking about restorative justice, some, you know, a lot of times people will think of diversion or how can we you know, divert people out of a criminal justice system and have more of a restorative justice or restorative process. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's part of it. We're focused on the prison context. And, and really that kind of the big, the big overall thought with restorative justice is it's about living in right relationship with one another. Mm. And so, you know, almost always when people commit crime, you know, like I mentioned, they hurt people, strain relationships, not only to the victims, to the direct, direct, to the direct victims, but also to their families, it erodes a sense of safety in the community. And just because a person goes through a criminal justice process and they're punished and sentenced to prison, it doesn't mean that the needs of the people that they've harmed have been met. So these hurts remain, the broken relationships remain. Um, and so in large part where we're at, in PFI's context, restorative justice in prison means that the people who are incarcerated they start that process of reflecting on the harm that they've caused, not that's just their direct victims, but maybe their family members, um, because crime has a ripple effect, like I mentioned. And, and, and sometimes for the first time, they're kind of thinking about these things when they are, are in prison. And so they're able to start reflecting and then maybe start taking steps um, 
you know, to the extent possible to make things right. You know, if it's safe, they might even meet the people that they've harmed when they're mm-hmm. incarcerated or even once they're released back into the, the community. And in these cases, the victim controls the decision about whether or not to engage in the restorative process with the prisoner. Um, but I think just as important, um, the car- incar- and this is what's really, really common in our situation, the incarcerated person might seek to make things right with their family. Because these family relationships yeah. are really key to when that person leaves prison and goes back into the community. Um, because, you know, what's really important for people to kind of to, uh, to stop reoffending is to have those positive, supportive relationships um, that have often been harmed by the, the, um, by the imprisonment, to have those relationships so when they're released, they can rely upon them. And so those are really, really important. And so kind of that's where we're at right in our context with restorative justice, both during incarceration where the person can reflect on what they've done and maybe take steps to make things right. But then also as they reintegrate back into the community um, to be able to have healthy relationships with their family and even others into the community so they can become contributing members again. Jonathan Derby is with me today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. He's a special consultant for Prison Fellowship International and was part of the team that put together the Restorative Justice Initiative Handbook that uh, Prison Fellowship is making available to ministries all over the country and all over the world with regard to restorative justice. Uh, Talk about how PFI has had some success. I remember from my Prison Fellowship days with Chuck Colson and the Breakpoint Commentaries, there was the Interchange Freedom Initiative in prisons. I believe uh, then Governor George W. Bush was a, a big backer of that. This is kind of something that ever since Chuck Colson, you know, went to prison because of Watergate, he looked at uh, the, the mm-hmm. plight of the prisoner and said, hey, you know, there, there's there's so much more going on here than just doing your time. I mean, if we serve a God who's a God of restorative love, then we should be doing that too. Uh, talk about some of the successes PFI's had over the years and how the Restorative Justice Initiative is just one of many successes. It's kind of, it seems like you're building upon uh, precept upon precept, success upon success. Yeah, I mean, like you like you mentioned, Chuck Colson, his vision was more than just you know prison ministry, but he saw he saw things more holistically. Uh, my mentor, Dan Van Ness, he's one of he's the main one of the main authors. He and Karen Strong um, on this book, Restoring Justice. He he uh, worked with Prison Fellowship for more than twenty years, and he founded the Center for Justice and Reconciliation. He really seeded a lot of restorative justice initiatives among the national ministries within our network around the world, and that that work has just grown. You know, obviously Dan led um, design. It's a program called the Sycamore Tree Project, uh, which has taken root in a lot of countries around the world. That's a prison-based program where it works with people who are incarcerated and it helps them to reflect on what they've done. Um, it teaches principles of restorative justice, things like you know, you know, forgiveness, reconciliation, and you know, around the world in these different contexts, you know, national ministries have um, implemented that program. And even from there, um, restorative justice has taken root. So, for example, I visited Rwanda uh, earlier this year, mm. and after the 1994 genocide, they have they implemented uh, restorative programs that really brought together the people who had perpetrated harm during the genocide along with the family members or the survivors of the genocide. Mm-hmm. And they created these reconciliation villages where these people would actually live together and work together, um, where the children of the families who've been, who had been impacted by the genocide, they would you know, become friends with the children of, 
um, of, of the, the, the perpetrators and vice versa. Mm, and that's incredible. the way that, that he brought, they, they brought reconciliation. I went to Colombia, same way, Colombia. Um, they implement sycamore tree as far as a way to bring reconciliation um, to help the, the country heal and uh, you know, post the internal conflict that ravaged the country um, earlier, you know, or last, you know, earlier in the millennium. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's just been powerful. And, and really kind of how restorative justice take, has taken root, it's really been based on the context of each country. Um, and it's just, it looks, it looks different. It could be, you know, you know, at a societal level like Rwanda and Colombia or, you know, just within communities like in other places. You know, it's amazing, Jonathan Derby, uh, when we think about what these uh, other countries can experience using these principles and how powerful they are. Uh, take the last couple moments of our time together here and center our attention back here on the good old U.S. of A. Uh, we've had a lot of internal strife over the past four or five years in particular here in our nation. And I know that there are a lot of Christians who are in anguish over it. Uh, it, it is it's frustrating to see. And, and yet there are those who would you know, sound the alarm and say, well, this is the type of thing that we as the body of Christ should be engaging in. We should be you know, a bigger part of this than we are. Uh, talk about how the initiatives that you're working on with Prison Fellowship can help us here at home. Yeah, here, I mean, again, I think, I mean, I mean, it's just very practically when you're talking about restorative justice, it's about how we deal with conflict with one another. And our society is so polarized that it, sometimes it feels like we're not even able to listen to one another and engage in meaningful conversation or dialogue with people that we disagree with. And so I think a very bottom line is just kind of creating conditions where we have spaces with one another where we can, you know, have have conversations with one another. Talk about our differences. Talk about maybe how um, we've you know we've we, others have harmed us and the impact that that has had. Um, but have more of a dialogue where we can talk instead of trying to blame one another um, about how we're how we're wrong. Really focus more about trying to understand one another and kind of finding common ground and be able to move forward. So um, I think that's kind of the the biggest area I, I see is kind of creating these spaces where we can have conversations, where we listen to one another, understand one another, um, and can be able to, uh, you know, overcome our differences. I love that thought because the, the name of the game is right there in the, uh, the lead on your website. It's about restorative justice, first and foremost. It's not just about paying the penalty. It's not just about uh, saying, well, we got the bad guy here. Or there's you know, e- even in, in a, a ministry situation where there's conflict resolution that needs to happen. I mean, the, we're not talking about everybody who is going to benefit from this resource being locked up necessarily. This is a good way to resolve conflict. It's a good way for churches to kind of find healing and some common ground with each other and and we're, we're all for any kind of restorative justice we could get. Jonathan Derby, special assistant and consultant to Prison Fellowship International, uh, one of the key players in the Restorative Justice Handbook, which we have up at thebottomlineshow.com, in addition to the website, restorativejustice.org. Jonathan, great to get to meet you. Thank you for the great work that you're doing with PFI, and appreciate your time being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thanks so much, Roger. Great conversation with Jonathan Derby today here on The Bottom Line and so grateful for the work that Prison Fellowship is doing with regard to restorative justice. We've got a link for their website up at thebottomlineshow.com and I encourage you to check it out. Hey, let's take a quick break and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this concept of restorative justice, what it actually means uh, not only to 
of those in the restorative justice world, but how it perfectly parallels and mirrors um, what we are doing in the body of Christ as Christians who are saved by grace through faith in him and now are called to live out that faith. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, so grateful again for my time uh, during the past half hour with Jonathan Derby, special consultant to Prison Fellowship International, uh, a developer of a handbook that uh, actually sensitizes national ministries about restorative justice concepts and model practices. And we've got a link up at thebottomlineshow.com for this uh, the, the work that Jonathan is doing and how you can learn more about it. You know, the concept of restorative justice is so, so biblical. Jonathan has this law degree from Pepperdine University, but without a faith in Christ, the restorative justice concept doesn't work. If you have somebody who commits a crime, they're arrested for the crime, they go before the courts, they wind up maybe doing time or paying a fine or something like that. Oftentimes, it leads to a repeat offender syndrome, where it's what's called the recidivism rate is so high because offenders get stuck in this cycle. The difference for someone who experiences restorative justice is not only do they have a chance to kind of make amends with the people or uh, person that they hurt, but also they get a chance to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to do this anymore. And prison fellowships, restorative justice programs have a very, very low recidivism rate. Uh, Criminals and inmates, offenders, if you will, who go through this wind up having a uh, uh, just a fantastic experience in terms of saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't me anymore. And the reason why is it's not you anymore. It's a great transformation. So please check out what Prison Fellowship is doing at pfi.org and learn more about the concept of restorative justice. As we continue on this Good News Friday, a powerful testimony from a woman who knows what it's like to be sexually abused, to be addicted to drugs, to be part of the legal system, and then have the hand of God reach in and say, you want restorative justice? You've got it. Author and speaker Christina Baker is going to join me next. We're going to talk about her brand new book called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. It's a powerful kind of devotional autobiographical look at her remarkable testimony. Christina Baker joins me to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. There are a lot of people who are of the impression right now that there are things that are happening that are kind of way beyond their control. Oftentimes when I'll look at a situation like that, I'll say, well, gosh, I wonder what their relationship is like with the Lord. But what happens when we in the body of Christ face a really trying situation and we start to feel as though maybe God isn't going to speak into our situation. Well, uh, author and writer and speaker Christina Baker is with me today here on The Bottom Line to talk about a brand new book of hers, 
that shares some prayers and some personal stories of literally miraculous transformations. And there's a great dose of scripture in there too. In the brand new book, it's called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. And we have a link to the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Christina Baker, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. I love the fact that you make this promise basically at the beginning that you can find hope in 60 seconds. And yet I'm sure there's some people are saying, well, wait a minute, that means you're going to solve my problem in 60 seconds. How did you come up with that title, Christine? Yeah, it was actually a conversation uh, during the, you know, just working out, you know, how we were going to put this book together. And, and somebody asked me this question. So Christina, what is it about your story that is giving people hope in less than 60 seconds? And, and in that moment, I just thought about how, you know, God didn't need an entire lifetime to fix me when I needed him the most. Mm -hmm. And in my darkest hour and in the moment where I didn't have anywhere to turn or anybody to turn to, he stepped into that moment in my present moment where I was grasping for hope in every other direction. And the moment that I met him, it was like, okay, I, I've actually found the person that I have been looking for all of my life in all the wrong places and in all the wrong things. So that's where the, you know, this question was just kind of random, but it was like, what is it about what you've been through that can give people hope in less than 60 seconds? And it is the Lord. He can step into our present and fix what we thought would take a million years in one moment. Right. Right. Well, isn't it amazing, Christina, how many of life's biggest issues are settled that quickly i mean let's face it i mean the the decision uh to to receive the gift of salvation because of the great the gift of faith happens literally in the twinkling of an eye or you realize you're in love with that person the right person happens in the twinkling of an eye i mean one minute you're with someone in the hospital bed they're not doing so great the next minute they're with the lord i mean it have all yeah. those things happen so quickly so it, it is almost kind of a western culture tradition that that says well, if you've got a problem here, we're going to put in the hard work, but it's going to take a while to get it solved. And the fact that you are saying, hey, wait a minute, let me, can I tell you a little bit about my life here? I think it's very encouraging. Christina Baker's book is called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. Got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Can you paint maybe a 90 second uh, picture, if you will, of what it was like for Christina growing up and uh, you know some of the things that you encountered literally from the get-go? Yeah, well, my parents divorced at a young age, Roger, and that, you know, with a lot of kids that come from a broken home that sent me into a tailspin of, mm. you know, really a downward spiral. I started cutting at a young age. Mm. Um, there were some things I went through as a child that I was trying to express the pain that I was experiencing on the inside. By the age of 15, I was, you know, partying, doing drugs and just out at the bars. We lived in Bolivia. So mm. uh, a third world country in South America. So my stepdad did not know how to deal with me. And so um, he had me go live with my dad, whom, you know, we thought that he was still an oil executive, uh, but was actually living in a tent on the beach. Um, at that point, he had been on the beach for almost a year. Mm. And so him being homeless um, made me homeless too. And so it was mm -hmm. like the curtains were ripped open at that moment in my life. Of like, okay, welcome to the real world. Yeah. which I had never experienced that before. And uh, so that, that was a, a huge, you know, by the age of 15, I'm homeless. You know, I was 
into the goth scene. Uh, I wore black on black on black. I was mm. once again, just expressing the darkness that I felt inside, the death that I felt inside on the outside. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a, it's amazing to think that God led you down that path that allowed you to go down the path that said, okay, my parents' marriage wasn't very good. So therefore that kind of created instability for me. And then mom has remarried, but dad is so, so distant. I mean, and so unknowable at that point that you're just kind of going off his reputation more than anything else. And I would imagine that that kind of vision that you had of your father that, you know, basically came crashing down when you're like, hi, dad. Uh, yeah, there's room in, in the tent. You know, I mean, this, this is where he is. Um, all of a sudden you're facing the reality and it, it, it's, it's harsh and it's dark and it's stark. When did God make himself known to you, Christina? Yeah. You know, I like to say the Lord was always trying to make himself known to me in different ways, looking mm -hmm. back on it. But the moment that I decided, if you're real, come into my heart, I, I actually got arrested for drug possession, mm -hmm. was out on bail. And I was working at a university um, where you know, kind of like my dad, I followed in his footsteps. My dad was an atheist, but he was an oil executive for many years and he had a bad cocaine problem. So he was, right. you know, doing what he did during the day at work and then doing drugs at night. And I didn't even know that I was following in his footsteps. So I was working as a counselor at a university in my early twenties. And I was, you know, telling people how to live their life during the day and then drugging all night. Huh. But like with everything in life, you always get caught. And I thought I would never get caught. In fact, I was driving down a road in Houston, Texas, and a police officer pulls me over. And little did I know that that moment was what the Lord was setting up for me mm. to meet him. So I'm out on bail. I'm sitting at my job in front of the computer, and I'm contemplating how to take my life. And I had contemplated suicide so many times before, Roger, but this time it scared me because I was like, I wasn't going to tell anybody. And I was planning out secretly how I was going to do this that night mm. and I get a tap on the shoulder and it's this man he was like a part-time Baptist pastor uh, but he worked at this university full-time as well and he taps me on the shoulder and he says Christina I have a word from the Lord for you and I'm like a word from the Lord like I didn't grow up in church so this right what is that strange yeah. to me sure and he says we have prayer meetings every day on the third floor on our break and we want to invite you out and honestly, the thing that shocked me the most, Roger, was the fact that I, how did he know what I was contemplating at that moment? Only, now knowing right. like only the Lord, but in that moment, I'm like, how did he know? And so I show up to this third floor break room. I walk into the break room and there's people pacing the floor, praying. And it was unlike anything I had heard before. It was like, I had seen people pray rosaries. I had seen people just other, but I had never seen or heard people pray the way that they were praying and i had this thought if there is a god these people have come face to face with him mm. and so hillroy walks up to me this is the man that that tapped me on the shoulder and he said this is a matter of life or death and when he told me that i had this thought of me dying in a car accident because of the way that i was living i was driving home drunk every single day mm. for a long time that was not something unusual at that moment, it's like, wow, I knew in my heart, like that was the, I felt like maybe this is what's next for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And he says to me, do you want to accept Jesus into your heart? And I'm like, I didn't know Jesus, mm. but I was like, 
whoever you are, they're saying your name is Jesus. And he says, repeat, repeat this prayer, you know, and he walks me through this prayer, receiving Jesus into my heart as my Lord and savior. And I'm like, come, come into my life, fix me, save me. And at that moment, it was like the boulders that I had been carrying around 20 plus years of my life, Roger, it was like they were immediately lifted. I felt this peace wow. yeah. that I had been seeking in the drugs all, mm -hmm. all my life. I felt that in one moment. It's amazing when you think about Christina Baker's testimony, and we're so grateful to be able to share it with our bottom line listeners today here on the program. And you've got to read the book, Open 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. It's amazing to see how, Christina, you, you just mentioned how important it is for you to be able to realize now that all of those empty exercises that you were involved in, you know, whether it's saying, okay, I'm an atheist, so there is no God, or it's drugs, or it's sex, or whatever it is that you were using to try to numb the pain, even self-injury and things like that, where you, you look back on them now and say, I was trying to find God, I was trying to find hope, I was trying to find healing, that's just the only way I knew. And the fact that God spoke to you through this pastor that, that said, gave you the opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute. I mean, if they're praying in Jesus' name, they're praying, if this is the way, I have faith and I'm going to place what little faith I have in this and see what God does. That's truly miraculous. I mean, what a getting chills just thinking about it. Hey, let's take a quick break because I want to get more into your story. It's so fascinating. Christina Baker is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. And we'll I've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about some more miraculous uh, encounters in Christina's life in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Newport Bay Mortgage will steer you in the right direction toward the truth about reverse mortgages. Owner Cliff enjoys educating every client and wants to debunk the misconceptions you may have heard. You'll see that an FHA-approved reverse mortgage gives you financial freedom. You can use it to pay bills cover unexpected expenses, or watch your children and grandchildren enjoy themselves while you're still alive. Cliff informs you of the facts. Drawing from his 40 years of reverse mortgage experience, you must be 62 years or older for the FHA program and at least 55 for a conventional high-volume program. It doesn't affect any credit score points and can even be refinanced after one year. When considering ways to enjoy your liquidity in, before, or for retirement, you need Newport Bay Mortgage. Contact Cliff today. Visit kbrightradio.com slash reverse. That's kbrightradio.com slash reverse or 714-741-8080. NMLS 332959. Newport Bay Mortgage, an equal opportunity housing lender. Christina Baker is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Her amazing testimony is part of this brand new book called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And uh, Christina, I know you have written this book not only to share your story with other people, but also to reach people who are looking at, I mean, would it be safe to say that the last five years of the world have just been the strangest, weirdest that any of us could ever have imagined in terms of, you know, governmental activities and pandemics and wars and things like that it's just been one you know uh, racial injustice i mean there's been so much going on in the culture right now and i'm sure there's someone who says look i'm looking for any hope i can find hope in 60 seconds sounds great to me were you thinking more in terms with this book of people who were in your situation who needed that tap on the shoulder or what about people who are now your brothers and sisters in christ who are saying hey you know I'm, i i know where my salvation lies but i'm feeling I, like I could use an extra shot of hope myself. Yeah. Well, that was my, 
when I wrote the book, my prayer writing the book was that because the scriptures tell us that we have overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony Amen. and the power of a testimony isn't just for, you know, somebody that's been saved one day or somebody that's been saved 50 years. In fact, when we hear testimonies of what Jesus has done in the lives of other people, the, the faith and the move of God in that person's life in that moment is still relevant for anybody at any stage of their walk right now. So as I was writing the book, Roger was like, God, my prayer is that this would touch uh, the person who's been walking with the Lord for for 40 years and the person that maybe just gave their life to the Lord yesterday, or maybe somebody who doesn't even know him because what he's done for me, he'll do for everybody. Mm -hmm. And what he does for you, Roger, he'll do for everybody else. So it's like, that was my heart was that whether somebody needs hope just to get a second wind, to keep on moving, to believe God for their own kids, to believe God for their marriage, to be restored, to believe for the Lord, to be provider for to believe the lord to believe to to know that what he is for one he is for all and we all need hope it doesn't matter how long or we all need hope and it only comes from jesus and that was my heart in writing a book was like i prayed that that the spirit of the lord would meet every single person that turned the pages of the of the book no matter where they were in their walk with him one of the great definitions for the word hope is the uh, expectation of what is certain. And I know for a lot of people, when you think about looking for hope or trying to hold on to hope, it almost becomes more like a wish, you know, like a Hail Mary pass. Like, I'm just going to put this out there and, you know, I, I'm hoping that God answers my prayer. Talk about how your definition of hope, Christina Baker, has changed with everything you've been through, not only in your childhood, but some of the medical challenges that uh, you and others in your world have encountered uh, since you've been walking with the Lord. Yeah. Well, the only hope that is certain is found in Jesus, Roger, you know that. Yes. And when you've encountered his love, you're never the same. You're never, ever, ever the same. And you know that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So I love how you shared how like hope is some, for some people, it's like wish it's a wish. It's like, mm -hmm. well, maybe he will, or, or maybe he might come through. But when we place our faith in him, we know for certain, for certain that God will show himself to be strong and he will do what he said he will do. And I believe that that was the biggest shift in my life is where at one point I had wishful thinking, but after coming to know who he was and how he had been there my entire life, even without me knowing that, that wishful thinking became certainty. Yes. Yes. And that, that certainty him. is, it, and that's it, what we can have. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's so imperative that we not only have that, but that we live as though we do have that, that solid footing. Um, you grew up in a home that was broken. You know, your parents divorced. You had a, a tough relationship with your dad, and now you've got a home of your own a family of your own too. What's it like to see God kind of restore that uh, for you? In your yeah. Life? You know, Roger, you never get over that. I wake up every morning and I, I am reminded that this is not the life that I should have according to the way of the world and the decisions that I made. I look at my husband and our son and just, I look around and, and just think about the coulda, woulda, shoulda of what really could have been based on the decisions that I made. I mean, I, you know, after I got arrested for drug possession, I was facing time in jail and 
you know, the rubber meets the road moment for me, Roger, came when, you know, I went to be arraigned for the third time hmm. after, after getting arrested. And I'll make a long story short, um, even my attorney was like, hey, you're facing this amount of time, but we're going to try to, you know, negotiate a plea deal. And it was the first time that I had heard the voice of the Lord in my spirit. And I, I heard the Lord say, go talk to the DA. I didn't hear an audible voice, but just in my spirit, I heard him say, talk to the DA. So my attorney comes up to me and I'm like, I need to talk to the DA. And he's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, I have nothing else to lose. Right. And so we walk out of the courtroom and he says, um, the DA says to me, so what's up? And I remember all of the people that were discipling me. They were telling me that God was truth. And so I said, I'm just going to tell them the truth about what happened that night. And so I just spilled the beans. I told him, I'm not the person that was in that car September 2nd. And Jesus Christ has saved me. And I know you get hundreds of people that come in here every day and tell you this, but really he saved me. And I'm, I'm deeply sorry for what I've done. He looks at me and he's like, you know, we all make mistakes sometimes. Have a great day. Walks into the courtroom. My attorney looks at me like, you're toast. And I felt that way. Like, I'm done. I just gave a full confession with no plea deal. Mm -hmm. We sit down. And what felt like 15 hours was like 15 minutes. And I, at that moment, Roger, I thought I had surrendered until that moment. But at that moment was when the true surrender came. And I was like, I did the crime. I should do the time. And so I was like, God, I'll tell everybody about you in jail. And it was like my moment of like, I truly surrender. Mm. And the next thing I know, my attorney walks up to me, holds up a yellow piece of paper that changes the course of my life. And it says order of dismissal. And I'm like, what's going on here? And he was like, Christina, they dismissed the case. They threw out the case. And I'm like, well, what does this mean? He's like, you're oh free to go. I run out of that courtroom, Roger, follow my knees. And I had been watching people, you know, I'd see these, these people that led me to the Lord. They would like lift their hands and glory, hallelujah. And I did the same thing that day. I'm like, if this is how you worship God. You know, yes. when you've been touched by God, you become indignant. You don't care what you look like. You don't care what you sound like. That was my moment of like the woman at the well. Mm. He rescued me. He changed me. He touched me. I deserved the time for the crime that I committed. And that was the first time that I understood what the cross meant. We deserved mm. the time. We deserved what was coming for us. But he paid the ultimate price with his blood if we would only accept him into our hearts. Yeah. And so I had my collision with the cross moment of like, you set me free. You delivered me. I will spend the rest of my days telling people about who you are, how good you are, how merciful you are, and what you've done for me. Incredible. I love it. What a, what a powerful story. And I love your gospel proclamation there, knowing that you didn't have seminary training. You hadn't that, that that confession of faith didn't come from a church. It didn't come from someone giving you those words. That was you having literally the Holy Spirit speaking through you, Christina Baker. And I'm, I'm so grateful things went the way they did and that you've been compelled to write this brand new book. It's called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com and we'll have a couple to give away uh, as soon as we wrap up our conversation here uh, today. But Christina Baker, thank you for sharing your testimony. Uh, thank you for continuing to encourage others with the good news. And thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thanks for having me, Roger. This was great. Oh, how I love that testimony. So very, very powerful. Uh, Christina Baker, today my guest on The Bottom Line Show. Uh, the book is called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. And as you heard from her remarkable testimony, this book will be a game changer for someone you know who needs to know that God is there.
right? God is there for you. God will be there. And quite frankly, the, the only thing that is keeping so many people from a relationship with God is the fact that the offer is on the table and all we have to do is say yes. Now, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of how we say yes on the other side of this break. But first, before we do break, remind you that we do have one copy of Christina Baker's book to give away, Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, is the number that gets you through to the bottom line. Christina Baker's incredible testimony is in this brand new book. It features 10 personal stories of miraculous transformations and some biblical teachings and then 20 short prayers as well. So it's kind of a different kind. It's like an autobiography slash devotional book. But you know somebody. We all know someone in our worlds right now. Or maybe you're feeling this way. Like you're up against it. The, you're about to have that final sentence handed down and you're going to be sent away for a long time, either in the end of a relationship or or you know, financial problems or whatever it is. Or in, in the case of Christina Baker, literally she was facing jail time. And the fact that God intervened with a better offer and that lawyer showed up and said, look, your case is dismissed. You are free to go. Um, that was a game changer for her. Hope in 60 Seconds, the incredible testimony of Christina Baker encountering the God of the impossible. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. is the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Christina Baker, uh, the powerful testimony that she uh, talks about in her brand new book called Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible. We have a link for the book at thebottomlineshow.com. And I'm going to leave this up to Teresa. I mean, you call 800-227-5278. I know we have one copy of the book for sure, but we might get a second. So if, Teresa, if you want to give away two copies of the book, please go right ahead. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, Chris, Christina Baker shares the story about how it was a pastor. And she didn't know. who just said, hey, everybody's praying for you at my office, my denomination, my church. And uh, somebody that just kind of stepped into her life and reached her heart and touched her with the good news of the gospel. You know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And here at the Bottom Line Show and K-Bright Radio in particular, uh, we are offering a special opportunity for you to nominate your pastor to become Pastor of the Week every Friday in the month of October. I'll be announcing a different winner. We've already had a couple of submissions so far. Um, You're going to receive a uh, um, a really wonderful prize package. Our uh, Teresa Kim, our promotions director, has been putting this together for quite some time. Um, we've got uh, just curated items, if you will, kind of called together from some of the pastors that you love here the, that have programs on Crawford Broadcasting, like David Jeremiah with Turning Point and Charles Stanley in touch and uh, Rick Warren with Pastor Rick's Daily Hope. Every Friday, I will be drawing a name out of the proverbial fishbowl, and then we will <laughs> announce a pastor who wins. But here's the cool thing for you with your church. The church whose pastor is nominated every week is going to receive 100 Bibles, courtesy of Alistair Begg and Truth For Life. Now, here's the cool idea. You can, <laughs> this, I mean, I just think it's wonderful. You take those 100 Bibles for your church and do whatever you want with them. Give them away. I mean, I know a lot of churches actually got rid of their pew Bibles, when uh, the pandemic hit. So maybe you need to restock. Maybe you've got a ministry outreach where you are on the street handing out the word of God. You know what? I encourage you to nominate your pastor for K. Bright's Pastor of the Week. 
uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month all through the month of October. You can learn more about it when you go to kbrightradio.com, and they'll be listening every Friday to Good News Friday here on the Bottom Line Show, and I will be giving you the opportunity to uh, not only win cool stuff, but also you find out if your pastor won. Pastor gets a cool little prize packet from all of us here at the Bottom Line Show, but also your church gets 100 free Bibles courtesy of Alistair Begg, Alistair Begg and Truth for Life. Uh, go to kbrightradio.com for more information, or you can ask about this uh, when you call uh, Teresa today at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 We're giving away a copy right now of the book we just talked about the past half hour, Hope in 60 Seconds, Encountering the God of the Impossible by the remarkable Christina Baker. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, you can enjoy the rest of your day. We've got uh, Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain on the network, more good news stories to share, especially as they pertain to, well, uh, what time of year are we looking at right now and what is important to us. Um, There was a huge state funeral not too long ago for the oldest reigning monarch in modern times. Um, The service had a very political tone, obviously, but it also had a very spiritual tone as well. We'll talk about the Christian faith of Queen Elizabeth and the songs that were used in particular at her selection coming up next as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and as I was mentioning in the previous half hour, um, K-Bright Radio has a, an opportunity for you to honor your pastor during Pastor Appreciation Month. The month of October is traditionally known as Pastor Appreciation Month. And every Friday throughout the month of uh, October, I will be announcing a winner in our Pastor Appreciation drawing. It's very simple. You go to kbrightradio.com and you nominate your pastor there. Uh, If your pastor's name is drawn, then I will read that name on the air. Your pastor will receive a prize pack uh, consisting of all sorts of great resources that'll be a big help to him or her. Uh, Books from David Jeremiah, uh, Charles Stanley, Rick Warren, the list goes on. But then for your your church family, if your pastor is selected, the church will also receive, our friends at Alistair Begg and Truth for Life have a gift for you of 100 copies of God's Word, 100 Bibles that you can use however you want to. You need to restock the pews after the pandemic, do it. You're opening a new sister church and uh, uh, that church needs some copies of God's Word on hand, do it. You have a homeless outreach or you just want to give away copies of God's Word, do it. Any way you want to, you can use those Bibles for whatever you'd like. But the good news about the good news is you can sign up now, sign up today to register to nominate your pastor for Pastor of the Week during Pastor Appreciation Month. You'll find all the details when you go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. And you'll find all that information right there. It is Good News Friday today here on The Bottom Line. This is the one day of the week where we say we know there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. But you know what? We are going to focus on the good news of the gospel and how that is being lived out. And one of the things that I was just really impressed with is, I mean, sometimes the gospel has to have muscle. Sometimes the gospel has to have legs. And uh, I don't know if you saw this video clip. We're going to put it up at thebottomlineshow.com. I do want to talk about the Queen's funeral because uh, Lisa and I had a chance to watch it this week, and it was really remarkable. But did you see this video? It's been going around. Uh, Our friend Billy Hallowell at Faithwire uh, put an article up and actually included the video as well. Um, A guy by the name of William Branch of Dufuniac Springs. What an interesting town. It's in Florida. Um, 
attempted to carjack a vehicle at a Chick-fil-A in town. The Chick-fil-A on Beale Parkway um, near uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And apparently he got into a kerfluffle with uh, a woman who was in the uh, restaurant. And so they, you know, the, the, the conflict, if you will, the conversation spilled out into the parking lot. And you know what happens when you go to Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, if you, the drive through is kind of a well-oiled machine. Uh, there's usually a couple of young people out front. And they got the, you know, the head bit gear on and the, you know, can I take your order? And you know, I'm, I'm having, it's a great day, Chick-fil-A, all that bit. And uh, meanwhile, this uh, one of the guys who was there, who was taking orders on the drive-thru, saw what was happening and said, this is incredible. Uh, Michael Gordon is the Chick-fil-A employee who literally heard a woman screaming in the drive-thru when she was trying to get out of the uh, Chick-fil-A there. Apparently, William Branch had followed her into the restaurant. And he had been rather... Uh, forceful with her, even abusive with her. And uh, they're not quite sure what the incident was about. But basically, she had a baby in the car. He had gone into the Chick-fil-A restaurant and uh, the management there said, look, you're being loud, you're being disruptive, uh, you, you need to get out. So he went out and he found the young woman in the car with the baby and he had a stick or pole or something like that, uh, it looks like, that he was brandishing, according to local police. It, it, typically, I mean, if you saw something like this happen, you'd say this looked like it was a carjacking. And evidently, according to police, that's what it was. Michael Gordon was working the drive-thru outdoors at the Chick-fil-A parking lot. Apparently, William Branch had approached the victim just moments before she was getting her infant out of the car. He was armed with a stick, and he basically started demanding that she give, her the key, give him the keys. He allegedly took the keys and then jumped inside the vehicle. Needless to say, the woman was hysterical, and she was screaming. And here comes Michael Gordon out of nowhere. And literally, he, the video shows him tackling the offender, fighting him off, in spite of the fact that he got punched in the face, the two guys are wrestling on the ground. Now, the woman uh, basically uh, took video of this whole event, like, can you believe what this guy is doing in my defense because this guy's coming after her. At one point, one of the witnesses you can hear on the video says, uh, she has a baby in your hands. How dare you scare her like that? For all the times, and this is a pet peeve of mine, for all the times that in the social media world, if something happens like this and everybody pulls out their phone, I'm going to get this on video. I'm going to police brutality or whatever it is. I'm going to be a big hero on TikTok. You know, it's amazing how once this went up, the number of people have said, hey, this is incredible. This young guy saw this perpetrator coming after a woman with a baby and he's armed with a big old pole or a stick or something like that. And he basically is trying to force her out of her car so he could steal the car. I mean, it's a real-life carjacking happening here. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Department uh, posted the video later. And fortunately, Michael Gordon was not seriously hurt. Uh, Matthew Sexton runs the Chick-fil-A branch where the incident unfolded told uh, CNN that he's happy everybody walked away relatively unscathed 
And he then also identified Michael Gordon as a hero. I said, look, I'm grateful for this guy and even better that he's one of my team members. I could not be prouder of this incredible act of care. It's quite the video. I mean, I, I could play you the audio here, but you really have to see the actual visual of what's happening here. The Oskaloosa Sheriff's Department tweeted out the following afterwards. They said, in reference to the uh, uh, Fort Walton Beach Chick-fil-A employee who ran to help a woman with a baby who was being carjacked, we want to offer a sincere thank you to Ms. Kellner for providing video of a portion of the encounter. A major shout out to this young man for his courage. Notice, again, something about this, and this is good news. Uh, they then posted and said, look, here's a picture of William Branch of Defundiac Springs. He's charged with carjacking with a weapon and also battery after he grabbed car keys from a woman with a baby outside Chick-fil-A on Beale Parkway and then got into her car. An employee intervened after hearing the woman screaming. Mr. Branch, I enjoy the irony of this, was wielding a stick. Just kind of fun with the names. But nonetheless, what everyone kept marveling about with Michael Gordon is the fact that they admired his courage. He had the courage to stand up and do the right thing. A woman and an infant were in danger, and he put his own self-interest out of the way and said, I am going to do sacrificially what is right for her. Full stop. Do you think in this culture... There are enough young men, and even young women for that matter, or older men and older women, who would have done the same, who would be willing to say, I'll get punched in the nose just to try to protect this child, to protect this woman, who would think, How, what can I do? This isn't right. You know, I'll be honest with you. If you look at this fray, uh, the, 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 the scenario and what happened here, this is the same type of thing that is happening in the culture right now. Now, maybe no one's coming after you with a big old stick and pounding on the hood of your car and threatening you to give over the keys to your car and putting you and your family at risk. But think about this metaphorically. You hold the truth, the truth of salvation. You know exactly what that truth is. The truth is God is God. We are not. And if we don't have a reconciled relationship with God, our lives here are meaningless. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how big a house you have. I don't care how nice a car you drive. You know, the Apostle Paul says, I've been in plenty and I've been in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is not about your possessions. It's not about your stature. It's not about your position in the world. It has everything to do with the moral, the things you take with you, the things that are coming to heaven. None of the stuff that we accumulate in this life is coming with us to heaven. But the values are, the character is, the courage is. And in a world that seems to be so self-obsessed with image and status and, and, and making sure that we're always doing the right thing according to what the media wants to see, it's refreshing for a guy who's working his way through school at Chick-fil-A or maybe working his way into management at Chick-fil-A, the guy who is the hero that showed a tremendous courage and even the sheriff's department said, we don't know his name. But as James tells us, faith without deeds is dead. It does not matter that we don't know his name. Well, now we do. It's Michael Gordon. But the fact that he took action, it wasn't like, hey, I want everyone to know how to spell my name when you put this up on TikTok or on Facebook or whatever. Nope. He just jumped into action and said, this is more important because I know that I could not stand by and watch this guy steal this woman's car, 
terrify her infant child. Just couldn't let it happen. So watch this video. You'll be inspired. And trust me, there is going to be... We're going to hear more about this young man in the days and weeks to come. We're going to learn more about his remarkable faith and courage. And we're going to be inspired by it. May we be the people who look at the raging fire of the people in the culture who are trying to steal away the innocence of our children, trying to steal away the integrity of our marriages and our jobs and our words and our deeds. And we, the people of God, need to be ready to stand up and to literally take a punch if necessary to uphold what is true and right and good. His nose will heal. But the damage done to that, potentially to that woman and that infant child might be irreparable had he not stepped in. Good job, Michael. We'll put this link up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, did you watch the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II? A lot of people did. How many? Oh, four billion or so did. Did you have the same impression that Lisa and I did? That there was something very, I don't want to say magical, but there was something highly spiritual and very God-honoring about the, uh, the, the procession, about the whole funeral. I want to talk about one of the reasons why we could sense the presence of God there on the other side of this break, because the bottom line continues. Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had 450000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between twenty and 30000 He says, zero versus twenty or 30000 Yeah, he says, I like the twenty or 30000 Sounds better. Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and uh, we did not get a chance to watch the Queen's funeral on Monday. Uh, Lisa and I are busy, obviously, working people. <laughs> but the other night, we did record it. And, um, you know, the, one of the great things about on-demand viewing now is you can record something, even if it goes on for hours and hours. The recording that we found was nine hours long. <laughs> Now, needless to say, I'd love to say we're that dedicated. We didn't have nine hours to invest in this. But I think it was Wednesday night. We watched, um, Tuesday or Wednesday night, we watched a good two or three hours of the service. Now, understanding, of course, that as Americans, and especially with a good portion of my family now in the African-American community, um, there are those who look at the Queen of England a lot differently than maybe some who have English ancestry or even whatever. I know that when I was growing up, there was nothing but respect for the crown. Everybody loved the queen and the king. And they, so I remember my mom and dad, well, my mom, uh, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to watch Diana's wedding to Charles. I mean, there's just always been this romance. And, and in our family, quite frankly, um, there's been a lot of intrigue with regard to the crown as well. At the same time, though, understanding that while Elizabeth was reigning, I mean, and remember she took the, uh, the crown at age 26, during her time of reigning, there have been some atrocities committed in the name of the crown 
uh, that are just unspeakable. I mean, for example, I, I share this just as one example that we were digging around and found even earlier this week about uh, when there was a, an attempt. Nigeria has been under had been under British rule for quite some time, and there was a coup attempt, if you will, um, to uh, start a new country, kind of a little offshoot of Nigeria called Biafra. And uh, the English found out about it and invested heavily in the Nigerian forces, and they, they quelled the coup, if you will. They killed a lot of people. There's been a lot of colonizing that has resulted in uh, subjugation and you know just all sorts of reprehensible things. And so you could look at the crown from the standpoint of, well, look at the horrible things that have happened. But then you look at the story, I mean, the days after Queen Elizabeth passed away, I was my social media pages were just flooded with people of the Christian faith saying she was a devout Christian, she was a woman of God, look at how important scripture was to her. I mean, this is amazing. And so I, at one point during the ceremony, I actually wept. I was just, I was so overwhelmed and overcome. First of all, with how beautiful it was. Secondly, how magnificent Westminster Abbey was. And at the same time, it kind of seemed like a place to honor God, but not necessarily meet God because it's so big and high ceilings. And, and those drone shots of the casket were just a little too much for my uh, equilibrium. But then I started thinking about, okay, well, what about, what's it like to be in that position where you see all the things that are happening behind the scenes and, and you're trying to have faith, but at the same time, you're trying to, you know, manage a people. And obviously there's a prime minister and there's a whole parliament that happens in England. And the monarchy is, is a bit more symbolic in many respects, but the wealth that they have, the massive diamonds and jewels and the lands and the castle. What was it? Now that Prince William is basically second in command and King Charles is ruling, uh, Queen Elizabeth had in her possession a castle. I want to say somewhere in Scotland that's like, I don't know how many hundreds of years old. It's worth a billion dollars. And now it becomes property of Will and Kate. I mean, just tremendous wealth and, you know, really knocks some people over to get it. So the question then is, well, what would this event be like? Would it be really political? Would it be largely ceremonial? We were both pleasantly surprised, Lisa and I were watching this, to see the Christian influence. The passages that were read by the, the newly minted prime minister, by a couple of the rectors, a lot of women involved in, in leadership, and I'm sure that that made the left happy, except for the fact that they were talking about the Lord. Uh, talking about the death, you know, the death and resurrection passage. It's John 14. I mean, it, it was it was really beautiful to see. And then even uh, Archbishop Welby's uh, homily was very much about sin and salvation. And it, it was for the for an Anglican priest. I was I was pleasantly surprised. But then, of course, you get into the one part of the funeral service that can really make it or break it, and that is the music. Be honest. Okay, we can all be honest here. This is kind of a confessional. I'll speak for all of us. We've all been to funeral services where the music is absolutely beautiful. And we've also been to funeral services where the music is just downright awful. People who are overcome by emotion, picking grandpa's favorite song or grandma's favorite classical music piece, and they just butcher it to the point where you're saying, I don't know what kind of wings you have, but I don't know who could be the wind beneath them. You know, that, that type of stuff. Or, or, or right now, the new favorite one, of course, is I Can Only Imagine. And I've been at too many funerals where I could say, I can only imagine what the song sounds like in the right key. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, back it away from that for just a second. The music here, of course, is beautiful. The choir at Westminster Abbey was spectacular. It was so wonderful 
to hear four-part harmony and six-part harmony. It was nice to hear the boys' choir singing so well when I've been to too many music concerts. And you have to, be honest, you've gone to some of your grandkids' musical things, and the music is just bad. The kids are cute, but the music's just not there. To hear those kids singing as wonderfully as they did was just remarkable. But can we take a look at the music that was performed at the funeral? There were seven songs in particular of a sacred nature that are worth kind of unpacking because, quite frankly, um, it was Yvonne Hewitt, the classical music critic for the uh, London Telegraph, who talked about the fact that uh, the musical portion of the order of service for the burial of the late queen is exactly what one would expect it to be, rooted in traditions of past royal funerals in a variety of musical styles from Jacobean formality to Edwardian sentiment. With just one very mild whiff of modern music, there are also subtle nods toward the Queen's own musical tastes and loyalties as well. Well, for example, All My Hope on God is Founded. This is a hymn that was written by Joachim Neander in 1680. It was originally with the German uh, setting. Uh, The hymn was translated into English by Robert Bridge in 1899, and it was given its current melody by a notable composer by the name of Herbert Howells. Wow. All My Hope on God is Founded, a song that was very important to the Queen, and the kind of message that you wouldn't expect a world leader to share unless they really meant it. How about Christ is Made the Sure Foundation, which is another one of the musical selections. It's a hymn. And basically, it goes all the way back to the medieval period. Uh, there was an unknown author who wrote this in Latin in the 7th century. Uh, a guy called Jason, excuse me, John Mason Neal translated it into English in the 19th century. And then, of course, uh, according to uh, the professor uh, Michael Hahn from Southern Methodist University, Neal's original translation has been significantly altered for today's hymnals. The uh, melody has been replaced by a stately tune that was written by uh, Henry Purcell. Um, beautiful, kind of a processional type of song. Another one of the ones, again, that boasts about Christ as her Savior and the foundation of her faith. The next selection that's worth noting is uh, a a service, excuse me, a song that is used at evening services. It's called The Day Thou Gavest, Lord, Is Ended, uh, written in the 19th century by John Ellerton, a minister of the Church of England. According to Simon Peter Sutherland, a theologian, this inspiring and uplifting melody sets the lyrics in motion for an ever-flowing waltz of affectionate love. There are no mere words. These are no mere words of a self-focused individual, but for the soul of a person devoted to and affectionate to the one true God. So inspiring to see these songs get their uh, full treatment in front of an audience, and I mentioned of four billion people, literally half the world's population, has watched this funeral service. Of course, many other people saw the, uh, the, the, the song or heard the song, The Lord is My Shepherd, I Shall Not Want. This version of this is actually from the century, 17th century. It was written by someone called Francis Ruse and based on the 23rd Psalm, of course. Um, the tune most associated with the hymn was added in the 1870s. Uh, basically, uh, this is one of those things where uh, they've tried to give it a bit of an update, and there have been so many different versions of The Lord is My Shepherd, but for the Queen of England to have that performed at her funeral was most remarkable. A couple more songs to look at as we look at the good news about the good news on this Good News Friday. It's coming your way next as The Bottom Line continues.
Welcome back to today's edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good News Friday, and we're talking about the good news, about the good news that was preached and proclaimed and sung at Queen Elizabeth II's funeral service this past Monday. Um, another song, that we, the full list is up at thebottomlineshow.com, by the way. Um, there's a uh, another song that was perfor- performed that many people might not have been familiar with. It goes back several centuries to the Orthodox Church. It's called the Russian Cantillon of the Departed. And the word Cantillon comes from the Greek word for pole. And this is the same pole that was used to raise up a scroll. And that scroll would be a reference to not only God's proclamation, but, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, and your name being in the Lamb's Book of Life. Sheep May Safely Graze is another song that might not be familiar to you. The music was written by Johann Sebastian Bach in 1713. Um, It's another song that's loosely based off the 23rd Psalm. It was written for the 31st birthday of Duke Christian. And it was performed as a a surprise at a banquet uh, at a local hunting lodge. Quite frankly, there was a... uh, um, it's it's funny because the, the 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 text of sheep may safely graze was written by Solomon Frank, and it praises um, Duke Christian uh, of for being a wise and protective leader. Um, that's a very kind way of saying actually you're not, but we're going to honor you as being that way anyway, because the Lord is your shepherd whether you're a good leader or not. And finally, a German song that just has a really tough sounding title. Uh, written by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's a popular choral piece that translates into Adorn Yourself, O Dear Soul, or Soul, Adorn Yourself with Gladness. Uh, It's usually performed during Holy Communion, but apparently it came from uh, a desire to acknowledge the Eucharist that the Queen had. Um, By the way, the German on this, I remember speaking German a little bit when I was in high school. Um, I like adorn, adorn Yourself, O Dear Soul, a lot better than Schmucke Dich, O Liebe Seele, uh, which is the German pronunciation of that. But nonetheless, isn't it nice to see? I mean, we, we know that every human being has faults. Every human being has uh, you know, sins that apart from Christ, we will never be able to be reconciled with him uh, unless we have salvation by grace through faith. Uh, we can hope and trust and believe that world leaders that we are praying for would receive salvation and we can hope and trust and believe that at some point in her life or earthly life queen elizabeth did in fact bow the knee to jesus christ receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in his death and resurrection and live a godly life we can also look at the things that happened out of the crown under her leadership and say well that doesn't seem very godly and that doesn't seem very christ-like but ultimately brothers and sisters what's the most important thing Was she a colonizer who should pay back reparations? Was she a godly woman? At the end of the day, regardless of the things that we have done or not done, the most important action we can take is to say yes to Jesus Christ when God prompts us by the power of the Holy Spirit to receive the gift of salvation. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't ascend to the throne and receive it. The only way is to receive the free gift that God wraps for you and hands to you and says, will you receive this gift of salvation, the payment of your sins and the resurrection and the life. And when you say yes to receiving that gift, all of heaven is yours. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the bottom line.